Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, and I do see, oh, so many guests tonight. Welcome, guests. Please sign in through your Facebook account or blog talk radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the, of the show so that you can call in make a, for a question or make a comment. Well, tonight's show will explore the new genetic genealogy standards and much more. This is not the first time that I've focused on a show on DNA, and I encourage all of you to review all of the archive shows on this topic. Well, tonight's guest is Dr. Blaine Bettinger. He is an intellectual property attorney in Syracuse, New York. In 2007, he started the Genetic Genealogist blog, one of the most respected and easy to understand of the blogs on this topic. He is an instructor for genetic genealogy courses at the Institute of Genealogy and Historical Research, Salt Lake Institute of Genealogy, the Genealogical Research Institute of Pittsburgh, Virtual Institute of Genealogical Research, and Family Tree University. Blaine was also recently elected to the New York Genealogical and Biographical Society's Board of Trustees. So let me give a warm welcome to Dr. Blaine Bettinger to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, Blaine. Thank you very much, Bernice. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm so happy to have you come on and share with us the genetic genealogy standards and more. And everyone, if you have not gone to the website, you can find these standards at www.geneticgenealogystandards.com. So let's get started. Why genetic genealogy standards? How did this come about? Well, like many other topics in genealogy, 
there are a lot of issues that can arise when using genetic genealogy. In particular, there are some ethical concerns, some privacy concerns, and these have, all these concerns have been in existence and arisen as long as we've had genetic genealogy testing, so about 15 years now. However, over that time, there was no guidance, there was no document or standards for genetic genealogists or genealogists looking to use DNA testing. And so everyone was sort of encountering and dealing with these ethical issues on their own. And so a group of genetic genealogists um, organized initially by C.C. Moore got together and decided that it was time to draft some standards that would help people approach genetic genealogy in a way that would minimize and um, lower the impact of many of these ethical and privacy concerns. So this group of individuals made up of scientists and genealogists and genetic genealogists worked over the course of about a year to draft these, these standards. Now initially the group came up with some standards on their own. They then vetted them with some well-known names in the field of genealogy, revised the document, and then it went through a public comment period. And during that comment period, we received many, many comments from people of all walks of life in the genealogy field. And we took those comments and revised the document. And in January of this year, the final version of the genetic genealogy standards was announced at uh, Slake in Salt Lake City at a colloquium they had. And um, they've been very well received so far. And, and it's our hope the hope of the Genetic Genealogy um, Standards Committee that these guidelines will help people as they use genetic genealogy and help them minimize the impact of these potential ethical and privacy concerns. Okay, well why don't you take us through the standards so that we could get a better idea of what your committee came up with? Certainly. So <clears throat> I want to point out first that it's important to know that these standards are actually directed to genealogists. They aren't directed to the genetic genealogy testing companies themselves. And so what we've defined as a genealogist is anyone who takes a genetic test as well as anyone who advises or requests that someone else take a genetic genealogy test. Now, often many of us will recruit family members, for example, to take a test. And so this applies to us both as a test taker ourselves and as an advisor of other individuals who are taking tests. Okay. The standards are broken, the standards are broken into two sections. The first are standards for obtaining, using, and sharing genetic genealogy test results. And the second section are standards for the interpretation of genetic genealogy test results. Now, the very first standard, company offerings. And this standard says that genealogists review and understand the different DNA testing products and tools offered by the companies. 
and prior to testing, determine which company or companies are capable of achieving the genealogist goals. So there are three or four main testing companies for genetic genealogy, namely National Genographic, 23andMe, Ancestry DNA, and Family Tree DNA. And we felt that it was important that people review each of the companies and determine what their tools offer so that when you have a specific genealogic, genetic genealogy goal in mind, you'll purchase a test at the proper company, the company that will ultimately lead to the, the solution you're looking for. Now, the second standard is to test with consent, and this is a very important one. And that's that genealogists only obtain DNA for testing after receiving consent, either written or oral, from the test taker. So, for example, of course, we can give our own consent, but if we're getting DNA from another person, we want to make sure that they have given consent to give that DNA. Um, in the 2007 New York Times, there was an article about how some genealogists were following after some of their their cousins to obtain DNA in ways that were without that person's consent. And so that gives rise to many different concerns. And to address this, the committee felt that it was important that people only do a test or collect DNA if that person has given consent. Now, sometimes an individual is recently deceased. And it's not uncommon, for example, for a genealogist to obtain a swab of an individual at a funeral home. And in that case, we, we decided that consent could be obtained from a legal representative in that instance. And in the case of a minor, consent could be given by a parent or legal guardian of that minor. And so in any event, <clears throat> it was important that genealogists do not obtain DNA from someone who refuses to undergo testing. So, for example, if there were an individual that you asked them while they were living to give DNA for a test, I think then that if they passed away and you took that opportunity to obtain a DNA sample, I think that would potentially violate this standard because this standard does say that genealogists do not obtain DNA from someone who refuses to undergo testing. Um, so, again, consent was very, very important to us as we were uh, drafting these standards. The third standard is about raw data. All of the, the major testing companies that I listed before do, in fact, return raw data to the test taker. And we think it's very important that genealogists um, test at companies that return raw data to the test taker. So, for example, when I send in a DNA sample, the company then sequences some of the DNA in that sample. And they create a file that has the results of that sequencing. We believe it's important that people have a right to that file, that right to their raw DNA test results. Um, not only do we ourselves have a right to that DNA test, but that the person who provides the DNA sample has a right to that raw data, even if someone else buys the test. So, for example, if I purchase a test for an ant, 
my aunt has the right to that raw data, even though it was I who purchased the test, because it is her DNA that's being tested. Um, the fourth standard is about DNA storage. Some of the companies offer DNA storage in, in terms of saving the remainder of a sample after it has been tested. So, for example, when I send in a, a collection of DNA to Family Tree DNA, it's sequenced for whatever test I order. However, the remainder of that sample, if there's any remaining, will be stored by the company. And I can then use that for other tests. And so that could reduce costs in the future, but it also makes it available for people who have passed away, for example. I may be able to obtain a new test for someone who has passed away if I have their DNA stored there. So we thought it was important that genealogists understand that some companies do offer DNA storage options and that uh, there are certain advantages associated with that. However, we felt it's also important to understand that the storage policy could always change. So although the companies do make, although at least Family Tree DNA makes that available, it's not necessarily a guarantee that it will always be available. Which in a way leads into the fifth standard, which is the terms of service. It's important that genealogists review and understand the terms and conditions to which you consent when you purchase a DNA test. Now, I know I'm guilty of not reading the terms of service when I, for example, purchase or download software or buying some service. I, I know I don't read all the uh, terms of service. And I'm, I'm a lawyer, so I should know better. I should be reading those. There was a, an, an experiment a few years ago by a company that they put in their terms of service that if you contacted them at their email address, you would receive $1,000 just for contacting them. However, this was buried in their terms of service, and it took several thousand downloads and several months before the first person read the terms of service in enough detail to find that buried clause. So it's, it's true that people just do not read the terms of service. Now, unfortunately, that means that people may not have the best understanding of what they're agreeing to when they purchase a DNA test. And that can ultimately lead to surprises down the road if, for example, they've consented to something like research that they weren't aware of because they hadn't read the terms of service completely. So it is important that a genealogist, when they're ordering a DNA test, will, uh, they should read through the terms of service of the company at which they're doing the testing. Uh, the sixth standard is a privacy standard. And it's important that genealogists only test with companies that respect and protect the privacy of the test taker. However, it's important that genealogists understand that complete anonymity of DNA test results can never be guaranteed. And that's because of the, the nature of DNA. It is being used by the testing companies to find family members and hopefully find close family members. Now, if that's the case, that means that even DNA that is anonymous 
or for which you've used a, a, a pseudonym or a fake name, then it can potentially still be used to identify you because it's being used to find close family members. And so although we can take steps to protect our privacy as much as possible, when we take a DNA test, it's important to realize that we, we cannot guarantee anonymity to anyone. Um, and this can be a problem, for example, if we have a cousin or a relative who doesn't want to test because they have privacy concerns. Now, we can tell them we're going to remove your name. We'll try to make it as anonymous as possible. But we can never guarantee to them that their DNA sample will be completely anonymous. That's just not something we can, we can promise. Um, the seventh standard is access by third parties. And this standard says that genealogists understand that once DNA test results are made publicly available, then they can be freely accessed, copied, and analyzed by a third party without permission. So many surname projects, for example, will publish the results of a DNA test, the STR marker results, and make those available on the website. And, of course, when those are available on the website, anyone is free to go to that website and perhaps copy that information or review it. But once it's freely available on the site like that, of course, you've lost all the, the privacy in that. You can't expect there to be any, um, uh, any privacy in those once you've made them freely available. So that's something to consider when joining a surname project. Now, it's it's the case that those aren't going to be too informative. They don't reveal much about you, uh, perhaps other than a, an association with your surname. So it's, it's not too revealing to have those on the website, but it's important to realize that once you make them available, they are available to all. Um, the eighth standard is about sharing results. And that's the genealogist will respect all the limitations on reviewing and sharing a DNA test result that's imposed at the request of the test taker. So if the test taker says, I don't want to share these results with anyone in conjunction with my name, for example, I want to use this fake name, then we have to respect that limitation. We can't then reveal their name to their matches without their permission. So it's important that whatever limitations on sharing that the test taker uh, requests, then we need to respect those. We can't go beyond and offer more information than we've been given permission to share. Um, the ninth standard is about scholarship. And uh, this actually is not only about scholarship in terms of lecturing and teaching, but also about uh, sharing results with other people. So when we are lecturing or writing or sharing about genetic genealogy, it's important that we respect the privacy of others. For example, we should privatize or redact the names of our living genetic matches from screenshots, for example, that we make of our test results before we share them on Facebook or in presentations we should be removing the names of our matches because those matches have not given us permission to share that widely. Now, of course, they have given permission for us to see their match in the framework of the website. 
So when we log into our account, we see our genetic matches, and they've given permission for that. But that doesn't mean they've given us permission, for example, to share it on Facebook or to share it in a presentation at a conference. And so when we're doing screenshots of our matches, we need to redact or privatize those names of our matches. Um, <clears throat> the tenth standard is about health information, and it's a very simple one, and that's that test takers must understand that DNA test results may have medical implications. Now, for the most part, the genetic genealogy testing that's done does not have any direct medical implications. We're not testing to see, for example, a propensity for a certain disease or condition. We're just looking to see if we closely match anyone else in the database. Now, 23andMe, for example, used to offer health reports. And uh, that was a specific test outcome of the 23andMe test. Now, in our raw data file that I talked about earlier, there can be information about medical traits, about propensities for certain diseases or conditions. And because of that, we need to realize that raw data that we get back from the company can have medical implications. So if we then go and share that with other people, it's possible that they could learn something about our health. Now, unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever way you look at it, DNA has turned out to be a rather poor predictor of our health. There was a time when we thought that getting your DNA sequence would tell you what you were going to die from, what gear you were going to die, all sorts of information about you. What we've learned, however, is that DNA is not that good at predicting our health. It's a combination of DNA and environment. And so although DNA testing does have medical implications, it's important to remember as well that often those medical implications are not that informative just because DNA is not always that informative of our health. The last standard in the first section is designating a beneficiary. Now, it's important that genealogists designate a beneficiary to manage test results in the event of their death or incapacitation. Now, what we're seeing is a lot of individuals that purchase tests, for example, in the early days of genetic genealogy, some of them have passed away, unfortunately. And now their test results are sort of in limbo because they didn't designate a beneficiary. There isn't anyone who has logged in and taken over their account for them. And so what that means is that there are sometimes these accounts that if you try to contact them, there's actually no one that's receiving the message. So it's important that someone else be able to step in and help you out with that if you are no longer able to do that yourself. And the way to do that is by designating a beneficiary. Now, that's the first section of the standards about obtaining, using, and sharing genetic genealogy test results. Okay, and you have certainly given us a lot of food for thought in this first section, standards for obtaining, using, and sharing genetic genealogy test results. Now, I do have a question that was sent to me. What is there about genealogical data from within our genomes that requires or doesn't require different ethical safeguards 
than genealogical data from traditional sources? Well, um, in many ways, DNA is really just another tool for genealogists. It's, um, in many ways, for example, a, a census record can reveal um, information that we need to privatize or that we weren't aware of. Um, but because DNA is able to reveal potentially these family secrets that are very recent um, and are potentially have an impact on a number of living individuals, then we felt it was important to have these types of standards. So many of us who do genetic genealogy on a regular basis know that there are a lot of secrets in our DNA because families often um, hid these secrets or didn't share them, and yet they're still there in our DNA and detectable. Because of that, it's often important to have these types of standards to prevent um, those kinds of family secrets from creating these, these ethical dilemmas. Okay, and then you brought up this whole issue of sharing results and the fact that genealogists should respect all limitations on reviewing and sharing G DNS test uh, results and that they should be aware of the fact that perhaps this information should not be just posted on Facebook with the names. You should protect the privacy of the individuals, but how do you police something like that? Well, there are no ethical police. Uh, well, I mean, there are no ethics police uh, to go and uh, police that, unfortunately. And so what I've noticed recently, however, is that many people in these Facebook groups, for example, are sensitive to this issue and they will raise it with the person who posts. And so I think the community is really good at recognizing the need for privacy um, uh, concerns and the need for us to respect the privacy of other individuals. Uh, so it's sort of a self-policing effort, but I've really noticed it very strongly over the past year or two, and, and I think it's a great development in the community. Right, and it's also information that needs to be passed on to some of the newer people that are getting their test results that perhaps they need to think twice before they take a screenshot and post it on Facebook. Yes, in, Just, in my experience, it's, it's, it's almost always the new people that are, that are doing that. And um, I, I think it's understandable. I think it's easy to overlook the privacy concerns because when you log in, you're getting all these names and, and you're seeing them. So it, it makes sense that you can then share that with other people to get that information. But um, I think once you once the new people stop and think about it, they recognize that just like we privatize other information about living individuals, we should do it about the DNA test results as well. So. You're right. It's absolutely the new people, I think, that are that are making that honest mistake. And uh, it's very the community seems to be very supportive and letting them know why they should privatize. And and they are always seem to be very receptive to that. 
Yes, yes. Well, I'm going to take, we're going to take a quick break, come back, but I do want everyone to know that the phone line is open. So that if you want to call in and ask a question or make a comment, please call 646-200-0491 and press one to speak to the host. So we're going to take a quick break and then come back and there are more standards. And so we're going to hear about those standards. So quick break, everyone. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Now, you have been listening to Dr. Blaine Bettinger discuss the new genetic genealogy standards, and you can find these standards at www geneticgenealogystandards.com. Okay, so Blaine, we're back on. And so take us through the standards for the interpretation of genetic genealogy test results. Yes. Now, um, we're on the 12th standard, and this one is extremely important. And that's that genealogists understand that DNA test results, just like traditional records, like census records, birth certificates, newspaper articles, can reveal unexpected information about the test taker and his or her immediate family, ancestors, or descendants. So, for example, DNA test results and records uh, can reveal things like misattributed parentage, adoption, health information, previously unknown family members, errors in very well-researched family trees, and a number of other unexpected outcomes. And if you understand that this is a possibility, before you go into testing, then it minimizes the impact that that may have when you get your test results back and learn that there is a surprise. Um, I was just speaking with someone, for example, who 
got back a test result and learned that their cousin was in fact not their cousin. And that unfortunately does happen. Now, I'm not sure why or what happened in that particular situation. And that might be something they need to figure out with more testing or more research. But it, it does happen that we get back test results and they aren't what we expected because of family secrets, for example. And so it's important to understand that it's possible when you get the results back that they're not going to be what you expect. This is definitely a, a key point that we should be explaining to people before they take a genetic genealogy test. Now, of course, it does present a potential roadblock. People may decide that they don't want to go undergo testing if there's a possibility they're going to get back results they don't want to get back. But I think that's better than having someone test and be upset by the unexpected results that they get back. That's right. Um, One of the things that we don't talk about a lot are the, the, the emotional aspects of DNA testing and the fact that you may get an unexpected result that will upset you. Uh, that's right. And from my experience, most of the time people are uh, genuinely relieved or happy to get the results that they get, even if they're unexpected. But it can be a, quite an adjustment period when you get your results back and find out, for example, that you are not um, related to someone that you thought you were going to be related to. And so if we understand the possibility before we test, I think it goes a long way to helping us um, be prepared for whatever the outcome may be. <laughs> Well, as you talk, I'm starting to get questions. And one of the questions is, did your committee aboard set these standards because you've seen issues that came up and you felt you needed to establish these standards? They just want you to go back and repeat why these standards were developed in the first place. Yes. Yeah, so um, these are are definitely all issues that can arise when when people uh, do DNA testing. So there are absolutely scenarios where all of these things have occurred, and the committee had a lot of experience with these, and so they felt uh, we felt that it was important that the standards address the various situations that we've run into ourselves or that we've read about others running into, and so definitely the real-life experiences are absolutely a part of what went into drafting the standards. And another question is, what's the difference in posting DNA test results and posting your family tree? Well, most people, when they post a family tree, they'll actually redact the names of living individuals. So. Similar to that, we redact the names of our living genetic matches. Um, it's pretty standard practice to privatize the names of, of any living individuals in our family tree that may be on it. Now, for most of us, or many of us, that's not a problem. When we list our family tree, there may be no one of our direct ancestors that are still living, but if we were to test a descendancy tree, for example, it may have a number of living individuals. And it's standard practice to privatize the names of 
those living individuals. So similarly, we should privatize the name of our um, DNA matches. Okay, and then another question, what about the family DNA projects? Now, and you mentioned this earlier that the results are all shared, but do people really understand that these results are public? Well, I think in terms of the surname projects, I think because those are well-known websites, so for example, um, I run the Pettinger Surname Project, and so when people join the Pettinger Surname Project, they can see the website that's associated with it and that the YDNA results are available online through that project. So I think there is at least a, a, a basic understanding that the Surname Project all have a, a website associated with them where results are made available. So hopefully there's some understanding of that. However, we did want to emphasize that point in the standards just so people understand that, that when they join a surname project, for example, the results might be made available. It, it certainly can't hurt to make people more aware of that. That's right. Well, let's continue on with uh, number 13. Yes. Now, this one seems like a, a pretty obvious one, but genealogists understand that there are different types of DNA testing. There is Y-DNA testing, mitochondrial DNA testing, X-DNA testing, and autosomal DNA testing. Different tests has different advantages and limitations, and each of them are used in different ways for genealogical research. Now, often we use multiple different types of testing to answer a specific genealogical question or to test a specific hypothesis. But before we test, we should understand whether or not the test we perhaps recommend or want to purchase is capable of achieving the goal. So, for example, if we want to study the origins of our surname, we're going to want to order a Y-DNA test rather than, for example, uh, a mitochondrial DNA test. So, just it's important that a genealogist understands the different types of testing so that they don't recommend or purchase the wrong type of test. Um, really kind of just a fundamental understanding of, of what the different tests offer. Now, for Y-DNA and mitochondrial DNA tests, we are currently working as the Standards Committee on developing some standards and guidelines specific to Y-DNA and mitochondrial DNA. We haven't finished those yet, but they are in the works, and they're meant to help people understand and interpret the results they get back of a Y-DNA test or a mitochondrial DNA test. Um, and hopefully those will be ready soon and we can share those on the same website at www.geneticgenealogystandards.com. Um, another point we wanted to raise as well, however, is that genealogists should be aware that even after an initial test, additional testing might be necessary. So if we order, for example, a simple Y-DNA test, it may be necessary that we have to upgrade that test or order an additional test to get the result we're looking for, to get enough information. So we don't want people to think that necessarily all I need to do is order one test and I'm done. In fact, um, there may be several levels of testing that are required. Uh, standard number 15 
and um, number uh, 16 are, are very closely related. And that's that there are certain limitations on Y-DNA and mitochondrial DNA testing. So, for example, a Y-DNA test looks at paternal relationships between two test takers, between two males. However, we want genealogists to understand that identification of the exact relationship cannot be determined by Y-DNA test results alone. And it's often the case that DNA works best with paper records. So, for example, if I take a Y-DNA test and another male takes a Y-DNA test and it shows that we're a match, we can't determine exactly what our relationship is. We may be brothers, we may be father-son, we may be first cousins. The Y-DNA test alone is not going to be able to determine what our exact relationship is, other than we are somehow paternally related. Very similar... A mitochondrial DNA test looks at maternal lines. It looks at my mother's line and a match's mother's line. But if I match someone else exactly on my mitochondrial DNA, I know that we're related through our mothers or are somehow otherwise maternally related, but I don't know what our exact relationship is. We could be siblings. We could be cousins. Again, we could be mother-daughter, mother-son, but the mitochondrial DNA test results alone will not be able to tell us what that relationship is. Uh, similarly, autosomal DNA has some limitations as well. And autosomal DNA tests, such as that offered by Ancestry DNA, 23andMe, or Family Tree DNA, it can be used to confirm or deny first-degree relationships with certainty. So, for example, it can determine whether a person is a, a parent-child relationship or full sibling relationships. But beyond that, the analysis will typically require both DNA test results and traditional records. So, for example, if we get a test back and we're predicted to be first cousins, it's, we, we may need some paper records to help us determine whether, in fact, we are first cousins or whether we're some other relationship that will share a similar amount of DNA. At the parent-child or sibling level, we can tell just from the results alone what the relationship between the two individuals are. Beyond that, it's going to require a little bit more information. It could be very basic information, like the, the age ranges of the two individuals, but it will require something beyond just the DNA test results. Uh, the... 18th standard is that there are limitations on the ethnicity analysis performed by the testing companies. Now, in much of the advertising for companies like Ancestry DNA or 23andMe, a lot of the focus is on this ethnicity analysis, and that's because people who aren't necessarily genealogists are very interested in this aspect of DNA testing getting back the results and seeing that they're 30% Irish, for example, or 15% um, African. Those are all important numbers that people really like to see, even non-genealogist test takers. But we want people to understand that there are a lot of limitations of the ethnicity analysis. For example, it's limited by the size and quality of the reference 
population database. So all of these calculations are performed by comparing your DNA test results to individuals from various companies, or I'm sorry, various countries around the world. And those countries around the world are the reference populations. If you're being compared to a small number of people, your results are not going to be as good as if you were compared to large numbers of populations from all over the world. And so the size and quality of the population reference database is a, an important limitation. Um, and because of that, estimates can vary from one company to the next. They aren't all using the same process or the same reference population. And because of that, when we're compared at each company, then we can get slightly different numbers. And sometimes we can get uh, very different numbers. Another important limitation of the ethnicity analysis is that we don't possess DNA from all of our ancestors. We have a subset of the DNA of our ancestors. I often talk about how we have two family trees. We have a genealogical family tree, which is all of our ancestors, and we have a genetic family tree, which is a small subset of that tree. Only some of our ancestors actually gave us DNA. And once we get out to about five to seven generations or so, we start to lose some of our ancestors off our genetic family tree. What that means is we can't estimate what our ethnicity per, um, estimate should be because we don't know what our genetic tree looks like. We may not have gotten DNA from that um, Native American ancestor, for example. And if that's the case, we may not see Native American DNA, even though we may have a Native American ancestor in our genealogical family tree. So it's important to realize that ethnicity analysis is limited inherently by the fact that we don't have DNA from all of our ancestors. Um, and so 18 is an important one. It's really important to understand that these ethnicity analysis, uh, uh, they're, they're good and they're getting better but they aren't perfect. And there are some very important reasons as to why they're not perfect. Um, the 19th standard is about interpretation of DNA test results. And it's important to understand that there are frequently more than one possible interpretation of test results. And that's because DNA testing is not exact. When we get the results back, we aren't necessarily handed the answer on a silver platter just like we don't have the answer when we find a census record or a birth certificate. Often we have to find several different sources of information and meld those together into a, a proof statement or into an argument that we can then put forward. Similarly, DNA often requires multiple different types of tests and almost always requires traditional research, traditional records, paper records, to combine with the DNA test results to arrive at the necessary answer. So it's important to realize that getting back the DNA test results is not going to solve all of our mysteries. It really is just the beginning of the hard work that we have to do to combine the DNA with the paper trail. Um, the 20th standard is that um, DNA is a part of and can be a part of the genealogical proof standard, for example. And that is that no single piece of evidence, including a DNA test result, 
constitutes genealogical proof on its own. And that's because we need to combine evidence from multiple sources, from DNA testing, from traditional records, from census, from birth, all sorts of different records. And we put them together to arrive at our, um, at our proof. It's just important to realize that DNA is another piece of the puzzle. It isn't usually the end-all, be-all. It's just another piece of the evidence we are combining to arrive at an answer. The last standard is about citing DNA test results. Now, um, it's important that we cite DNA test results in a way that allows others to review and consider that citation or that evidence. Unfortunately, we haven't finished the citation standards, but we're currently working on guidelines to help people cite DNA test results in a way that allows other individuals to um, review those and to verify those. Um, and stay tuned at www.geneticgenealogystandards.com and hopefully those will be uh, released soon. So those are the genetic genealogy standards and hopefully I provided a little bit of insight into each of them and why the committee felt that it was important to include them. Well, I do have questions for you coming out of the chat room. The first question is, do the DNA companies have standards that are different from what the committee came up with? None of the companies had a standards document per se that they were putting forth as a stand as standards. Now, um, Family Tree DNA has uh, supported these standards that we've promulgated, but before these, there were no standards that were being put, in, put forth by the various companies. Now, that isn't to oh. say they didn't agree or believe in these standards, but there was no formal document in any way that was being put forth. Okay, and then the next question is really, are these standards or just guidelines? Well, and this I, is I a question that, coming out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's an interesting question, and it's it's something that um, that I think the committee is is um, going to have to address. They're really um, meant to be standards, but they sort of um, blur the line between standards and guidelines. In many ways, in many ways, some of these are could be considered guidelines. Uh, to help people interpret the results, but they were really meant as standards. Um, they're information that a genealogist can read through this, and if they're following these standards, then hopefully they're not encountering or they're minimizing the ethical issues that we talked about earlier. Right, and then there's a, the questions are coming, so I'm just going to try to keep sharing these with you. Do you think that the standards will scare people away from doing the testing? The more rules typically will make people run away when they don't understand. Um, you know, I, I, I did address this at one point in, in terms of what I call the roadblock. I do think, unfortunately, that these standards are potentially a roadblock to, for testing for some people. But I think those are people that 
um, probably shouldn't be testing in the first place. Uh, what I mean by that is if someone um, reads these standards and thinks to themselves, wow, there's no way I'm going to agree to do testing, then they're exactly the type of person that um, isn't prepared for the outcome of a DNA test result. They're the type of person that would be negatively impacted possibly by, for example, an unexpected result. And so what this does, I think, in a way, is, is filter out those individuals. Now, certainly, I understand how important it is to get that one person to test that you really need to do the test, and you don't necessarily want to present any roadblocks to them testing. But I think it's more important that we try to minimize these ethical concerns than um, to make someone... Uh, to allow someone to do testing almost blindly without understanding the implications of the testing. Right. Now, when we think about standards, and this is another comment, does it mean that if the individuals do not adhere to the standards, that they will expect some kind of reprimand from the standard keepers? Well, you know, I liken these standards to the um, to the um, board for certification standards, for example, and that they're standards that are promulgated in order to provide um, genealogists with for, with standards and guidelines for best practices. But again, as I said earlier, there are no ethics police. And so if someone is not following these standards, there isn't, there isn't any formal reprimand process that's in existence. Perhaps at some future date, people can attest to um, these standards and can agree to adhere to them and follow them. And maybe at some point, there'll be some sort of process in place for if they fail to do so. But I think at this early stage, we're really just putting these forth as if you want to adhere to best practices and standards in the field of genetic genealogy, these are what we feel are the standards that you should follow. Um, there are no repercussions for not doing so, other than we may not be minimizing the effect of these ethical issues we've, we've um, talked about. Okay, and then there's another comment, which is very interesting. Uh, the statement is that the average family historian will not be aware of or even consider that these standards are important. Those that are genealogists and also professional genealogists may pay attention to the standards. Should we be concerned? Well, I think that's an absolutely valid point, and the committee is trying to do everything they can to um, advertise and make these standards as widely available as possible, but you're absolutely right. Because it's not being set forth to every individual when they purchase a test, it's not at the point of sale, for example, and so the the the, the the individual is right that many people who are purchasing the test are never seeing these standards and don't understand 
um, and can't adhere to them if they aren't aware that they're out there. Um, We're doing everything we can to make them as widely known as possible, but there are absolutely going to be situations where people test and and just aren't aware of them. I think, for example, the, um, the, the genealogy standards that are available, many beginning genealogists aren't aware of the standards and um, don't adhere to them when they're beginning their genealogical journey. I certainly was not aware of any standards when I started um, long ago, and it's only when I became more of a professional genealogist that I became interested in understanding the standards. That may be a similar situation here. It may be that as people become more experienced with genetic genealogy, they learn of the standards and are more interested in adhering to them. I'd love for these to be available to every test taker when they purchase a test, but we're certainly not at that at that point yet. Right, and we we still have coming out about the role of the companies and that the companies should have, there should be certain standards for the companies because there are too many charlatans taking advantage of people's lack of genetic literacy selling lackluster products. Right, so we made the decision early on, excuse me, we made the decision early on for the standards to be directed at genealogists rather than the testing companies, but we feel that if many people adhere to these standards, in a way they are going to be directed to the testing companies because, for example, people will only test at companies that are adhering to the standards. In other words, in order for many people to adhere to the standards themselves, they're only going to be testing at companies that adhere to the standards in turn. So we believe that there will be sort of a ripple effect of the companies um, adhering to these standards because genealogists are adhering to these standards. Um, yes. And hopefully yes. that will that will help um, prevent these smaller um, charlatan companies from having a, a strong impact. Right. Well, another comment is folks want the information. And it is hard when a few set a standard and say, do it this way, not this way, when all they want is information. How do you react to a comment like that? Well, <clears throat> I think it's a, it's a valid point that, um, in a way, these standards do present some roadblocks to getting test results and getting people to test. Um, I think in the long run, however, it's important to have these standards to prevent the type of ethical issues we're, we're seeing arising. Um, I, I, when I think of genetic genealogy ethics, I always think of, of, of the front page test. And that's whether we want the, what we're doing to be seen on the front page, for example, of the New York Times. If we're comfortable asking someone to give a DNA test and um, we're comfortable enough to see it on the front page of the New York Times, then we're uh, most likely meeting the standards and, and are, can have a reliable outcome. But if for some reason we are not giving, every, giving someone enough information or we're not telling them about all the possible outcomes and then they get a negative outcome and are upset about it, that certainly isn't something we want to see on the front page of the New York Times. So, um, 
I do understand that these these standards can present some roadblocks to individuals, but I think in the long run, it's worth it because it will um, prevent many of the ethical issues and problems that we can see arising. Right, and you're speaking of ethical issues, but there's a question coming out. Has there been some lawsuits that you are aware of that perhaps we don't know about? Well, um, there are no lawsuits directed towards the types of ethical issues we're dealing with here in, in this document. So, for example, no one that's gotten back a negative result and then, um, or an unexpected result and then sued the company, for example, for either failing to tell them or for some emotional impact. There aren't any lawsuits like that that I'm aware of. Um, and I think having a standards document will hopefully minimize that possibility, but it certainly isn't impossible. Okay. Well, we're going to take another quick break, and I want everybody to know the lines are open, 646-200-0491, and press 1 to speak to the host. Just very quick break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. And we have really learned a lot tonight about the genetic genealogy standards. And so there's another question or comment coming out. And it's in reference to the, the follow the question, the previous question about lawsuits. Have there been situations where you are aware of people being forced or tricked? into submitting DNA samples without their consent? Well, um, like I said, there was the, the article in the New York Times in 2007, and it talked about individuals who were, who were um, for example, following some of their cousins who had refused to undergo testing and were prepared to... Um, obtain DNA from, for example, discarded cups and other things. So I'm not aware of anyone, because the DNA test requires so much sample, it's really hard to collect that surreptitiously without the individual knowing. For example, um, a test at Ancestry DNA requires a, a vial of saliva from the test taker, and it's kind of hard to collect that 
um, uh, from them without them knowing. So it's really hard to do that, but um, it certainly isn't impossible, for example, for a cheek swab that someone couldn't go and and get um, that sample from someone without their knowledge. So I'm not aware of any specific circumstances of it actually happening, but um, we we wanted to include that standard to preclude that ever from happening. And also, we wanted to make sure that people weren't, um, genealogists weren't getting consent for a test, but not sharing all the information with the test taker, for example. We think that the consent is in, uh, required is informed consent, and so that means that when someone is requesting a DNA test from someone else, they're providing them with, for example, information from the standards about possible outcomes and unexpected outcomes, all sorts of the information that's required. Okay, and you have one standard, and that's standard number seven, access by third parties. And so I want to shift our discussion just a little into going into uh, a third-party discussion about GEDmatch. And so share with us what you would consider the advantages versus the disadvantages of downloading and uploading your raw data to GEDmatch because many people, especially those that have tested with Ancestry, have been encouraged to upload their raw data to this third-party site. Yes, that's right. So GEDmatch, as you said, is a third-party site and it offers people the ability to upload their raw data from one of the testing companies and be compared to everyone else in the, the database, um, which is currently over 100,000 people. So it's a very large database, and there are lots of different tools that are available. Because of that, it is a, a very valuable resource. Um, now, what I generally tell people, however, is that it is a third-party site. Your DNA is being downloaded from the testing company and it's being uploaded to the GEDmatch site. So if you aren't comfortable with sharing your raw data, if you aren't comfortable with the possibility that that raw data could be, um, uh, could be, um, uh, so that something could happen with that raw data, then you certainly don't want to consider using GEDmatch. Now, um, many people use GEDmatch, and there have been no negative outcomes that I'm aware of, but it's important to be aware of the possibilities and to make a decision based on that awareness. So, for example, um, I've uploaded my results to GEDmatch from the testing companies, and I've made the decision that I'm okay with that. I think that the information that's in the raw data file is is limited. It, as I said before, there isn't much health information. There isn't much medical information. There's not much that's of value there to me other than matching it to other individuals. So I feel more than comfortable personally uploading it to GEDmatch. There may be some people who have more serious privacy concerns 
And in order to minimize all risk, first of all, you probably shouldn't be doing, doing DNA testing to begin with. But if you want to minimize all risk and you have done a test, then you certainly don't want to be um, downloading your raw data and uploading it to a third-party site. Again, I think, I think those um, privacy concerns are very limited, but I, I also want people to be informed before they decide to join a site like GEDmatch. Well, let's talk about some of the advantages of, of putting your, uh, uploading your raw data to GEDmatch. What can you get out of doing that? Well, GEDmatch is full of valuable tools. For example, GEDmatch is the only way to compare results cross platform. And what that what I mean by that is the only if you've tested at 23andMe, for example, the only way you'll be compared to someone that's tested at Family Tree DNA or at Ancestry DNA is via GEDmatch. Because of course the companies aren't sharing data. They don't compare from one company to the next. But when you upload your raw data to GEDmatch, you're being compared to everyone else in the GEDmatch database. And that's people from 23andMe and people from Family Tree DNA and people from Ancestry DNA. So there's a lot of value to getting that cross-platform comparison. Now, that may be minimized if, like me, you've tested all three companies. But, for example, at Ancestry DNA, Ancestry DNA has made the decision not to return uh, segment data to test takers. And what that means is Ancestry DNA does not return the segments you share with another individual. So I don't know, for example, what segments of DNA I share with each of my matches. I do know that at Family Tree DNA uh, for each of my matches, and I know that at 23andMe for certain matches, those who have agreed to share that information with me. So in order for me to get segment data from Ancestry DNA matches, both I and my match need to upload to GEDmatch. And you're absolutely right. Many people at Ancestry DNA have uploaded their data to GEDmatch. And so we get that kind of extra information. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's lots more tools at GEDmatch that people can use. For example, there are ethnicity calculators. So, for example, if you've gotten an ethnicity estimate back from the company, but you want to try some other calculators, there are numerous calculators at Jetmatch. All you need is the kit number from when you upload your results, and you can try all those different calculators. Um, there are lots of smaller tools. You can learn whether your parents were related, for example. There's the Are My Parents Related tool. There's a one-to-one -one comparison. You can compare your DNA to anyone else in the Jetmatch database one by one. Um, there's the one-to-many tool where you're compared to everyone in the database and all your closest matches are shown to you and ranked. So there are a vast number of tools available at GEDmatch that are um, uh, very powerful for people looking to learn more about their DNA test results. Also, the whole triangulation, and just explain to uh, the, the listeners what that means. Right, so <laughs> triangulation is a process by which we try to assign 
segments of DNA to a particular ancestor. So we know each of our segments of DNA, all of our DNA came from um, one of our ancestors. If I can point to a location on one of my chromosomes, for example, I uh, would like to be able to determine what ancestor that segment came from. The way I do that is by looking at other individuals in the database that match me at that segment. So let's say I have a long segment on chromosome 1, and I find three other people that match me on that same segment, and they all share that same segment with each other. Now we have a, what's called a triangulation group. And what that means is we have all most likely received that segment of DNA from a common ancestor. And so what we want to do at that point is then compare our trees and try to find overlap among our four different trees to find potentially what we think is the common ancestor the individual who gave the DNA to me and to the three other individuals. And that's the process of triangulation and chromosome mapping. Now, we have a, a comment coming out of the chat room, and it's specifically relating to uh, a statement about GEDmatch, stating that it would be really useful to see some guidelines developed for GEDmatch. Um, I, I think that's right. There are a few, um, um, a few ref, uh, resources for GEDmatch. Um, I think Kitty Cooper's blog uh, jumps to mind. But um, I think you're right. There is definitely a need for more information about best, um, about ways to use GEDmatch and about the tools there. Now, there is a wiki available at GEDmatch. Um, Unfortunately, GEDmatch is actually down today, but there is a wiki available at GEDmatch when it's up that provides a little bit of information, but certainly not enough. Um, so I agree. I, I think you're absolutely, your, your commenter is absolutely right. We, we need more resources about how to use GEDmatch. I agree. And there's, of course, another comment that some, some people have never heard of uh, these tools. And so how do we continue to get information out there to the general public other than for them to see a commercial about a DNA test without the education going with the promotion of taking the DNA test? Well, yeah, I, that's a really good point. And, and um, definitely... That's a concern that many of us in the field have. I, I've been blogging at the genetic genealogist for, um, I guess, eight years now, and definitely getting the word out there was one of the major reasons I started the blog back in 2007. So I, I know we're all trying to get the word out there about the standards, about GEDmatch, about the various options. And, um, for example, there are lots of new um, courses and um, both in-person and online about using GEDmatch and, and interpreting the results from the various companies. But there certainly is lots more that we all can do to, to get the word out there. 
That's right. There's a lot more. And so the question about the standards now, are these standards cast in iron? Are they vetted to the point where they cannot be changed or modified? Where are you? I mean, where's the committee when it comes to these standards? That's an excellent question. And I, um, my answer to that is that they are not set in stone. They are very solid guidelines. They have been officially released. And we don't necessarily have an official process in place for revising them. But I think the very nature of DNA means that we have to um, constantly revise them because there are new tools being developed. There's new issues that arise constantly in the field of genetic genealogy. If there's any field in genealogy that's changing more rapidly than ever, it's certainly the DNA field. So we feel that these standards are good standards for this point in time, but we also believe that they are going to continue to be revised and updated, not on a frequent basis, but there will come a time in the near future when we want to uh, perhaps revise them or add to them. Also, under the whole area of scholarship, are we going to eventually start seeing people that are certified genetic genealogists just as we see certified genealogists? Well, you know, I think that that is a long-term goal of the committee and the field to perhaps have certified genetic genealogists just um, uh, I, I think that's a long way off in terms of there's a lot that needs to be done first, but I think that's definitely a, a, a long-term possibility, a long-term goal of the committee. Um, I think that having certified genetic genealogists would allow people to um, make decisions about employing gen genetic genealogists, for example, based on that certification. Now, mm -hmm. as with as with certified genealogists, I certainly don't think that um, you need to be certified to be a good genealogist. You certainly wouldn't need to be certified to be a good genetic genealogist. It's just an option, I think, that would be available to help the novice evaluate someone who is putting themselves out there as a professional genetic genealogist. Right. And I, and I can hear, you know, you say that because you are looking for some degree of competency and you want to make sure that it's, it's kind of standard across the board when you talk about genetic genealogists. So do you have I, any, go ahead. I, I think that's absolutely right. And I, I think that a certification process would, would help bring that consistency and, and that that level of knowledge and, 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 and really help people understand um, genetic genealogy. So uh, a question that's coming out, should geneticists be a part of the body of standard keepers or the team of people who develop the guidelines? And I hope I'm reading this correctly. Um, yes, I, if I understand the question, there were geneticists in the genetic genealogy um, uh, committee, the standards committee, because we also felt it was important to have um, uh, geneticists involved in the process. Um, 
Now, I, um, there are actually many um, population geneticists who, who don't necessarily, um, believe it or not, understand or um, uh, work or approve of genetic genealogy just because it is at, sometimes at odds with their particular field. So we found geneticists that were, were understanding of genetic genealogy and, and used it as a tool themselves. And so those are, we definitely have a few of those members on the committee. Yes, and, and I can understand what you're saying between the difference and why it's important for a geneticist to understand genealogy, genetic genealogy, as opposed to just genetics. Yeah, well, do you have any parting words, which you believe we're close to the end of the show and we've talked about the standards and more. So we did talk about JetMatch. Anything else you want to share with us before we close out the show tonight? Um, I, I don't think so. I, I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the standards and if your listeners, um, anything they can do to help spread the word about the standards would be appreciated. And if they have any questions about the standards, feel free to contact me or any of the other members of the standards committee, which is available. A list of the standards committee is available at the end of the standards document. So you can find all of those individuals online quite easily and feel free to contact them with any questions you have about the standards. Other than that, I, I really would like to thank you for the opportunity to talk about the standards this evening. Well, thank you so much. And I just have a, a parting comment from one of the chatters. Uh, and it's just a statement that the average person does not understand all of this. And they would hope that the realm of education will be created where the average individual will be able to grasp everything that they need to understand about genetic genealogy. So I'm just hoping that uh, we will see the day when we start speaking about genetic genealogy, that people will know exactly what we're talking about when we talk about DNA and DNA standards and triangulation and raw data and what have you. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing this information with us. Well, good evening, everyone. And I just want to thank you, Blaine. And remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, DNA, yes, and research at the National Archives and beyond. Well, you can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page and the Afrogenius Facebook page and many of the DNA Facebook pages. Just continue to dialogue about the standards. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice, Baby's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And my website is www.geniebroots.com. Well, I look forward to you joining me next Thursday 
for a discussion on the USCT Widow's Pension Stories. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. This is your host, Vernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Blaine. Good night. Thank you.